starting a practice, you know, you try every, you try every material at first. But it soon became clear to me that whatever the question, trees had the answer. Hello and welcome to this fourth episode of Words on Wood, the finale of our first season. My name is Ollie Stratford and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Christina Rapatsky, your other host. That's most of the introductions done then, but I'm afraid I didn't recognise the voice that started off this episode. I take it that they're not a third co-host? <laughs> Sadly not. We don't have an exciting new addition to the team. That was actually the architect Alex de Reich, who is co-founder of the studio DRMM. He's had a prestigious career, designing buildings of all kinds across the UK and internationally, as well as leading the architecture department at the Royal College of Art in the early 2010s. And judging from Alex's opening remarks, I'm guessing that he's an advocate for timber architecture. (laughs) That's maybe an understatement. Uh, At least in the UK, DRMM is one of the studios that have really done the most to champion timber in architecture. So Alex was actually part of the team that developed cross-laminated hardwood timber, or CLT, which was something of a game-changer for timber construction. And DRMM also won the Sterling Prize for their reconstruction of Hastings Pier after the original burned down. Which, for those who aren't in the architecture world, that's actually a pretty big deal. It goes to the best new building in the UK each year, or the building that has, quote, made the greatest contribution to the evolution of architecture in the past year. It's like a BAFTA for buildings. Yeah, best supporting pier in a British seaside town. DRMM rebuilt this pier as a CLT structure, which they then clad in the original timber decking that had survived the fire. If you haven't seen it, Google it. It's very beautiful. Well, wood probably makes sense for a pier, but Alex did specify that trees hold all the answers for him. So he thinks timber should be used more widely across typologies, I take it. He does, yeah. And he has a couple of reasons for thinking that, with environmental factors being a big one. Everybody should know that that's a given, that timber is the supreme carbon hoarding material. But beyond that, people like wood. I mean, come on. What would you rather, a wood or a concrete coffin when you're planning your funeral? That might sound macabre, but I'm just trying to make the point, you know, that only engineers and architects actually like concrete, I think. People like wood. Not to disrupt the narrative, but I actually really like some concrete buildings. It's not just the architects who like brutalism and a certain modern buildings. I'm not so sold on concrete coffins, though. Concrete can be gorgeous, so Alex perhaps phrases the point a little bit strongly there. But I think I know what he's getting at. There is something immediately charming and pleasant about wood, which concrete has to work a little bit harder to achieve. But Alex actually sees that move towards wooden structures that he describes as fitting into a broader transition within architecture history. You know, if you think that the 18th century was, you know, the end of brick, really, as I see it, despite what's happening now, you know, that was the peak of brick. And then the 19th century was about steel, quite obviously, the technical revolution, particularly people like Bessemer, who generated the possibility of railways. And then, of course, the 20th by concrete. So it did occur to me quite early on that this century was going to be the century of wood. The time for timber. Now, over the course of this series, we've been setting out some of the reasons why a person might think that. 
environmental concerns, advances in timber construction techniques, and so on. Right. But there's one more thing which we haven't touched on, which is the way people respond to wood. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. How do wooden structures make people feel? So I want to talk about biophilia and biophilic design first. Now, these come up a lot in design and architecture discourse. But there's a bit of a problem in that it's rarely explained what exactly is meant by that term biophilia. Right, and that's why I spoke to the architect Amanda Sturgeon, who has actually written a book called Creating Biophilic Buildings, and who founded something called the Biophilic Design Initiative. So I wanted to get her definition. Yeah, well, the term biophilia is like love of life, you know, instead of phobia or fear of life. In terms of biophilic design, it's sort of, you know, design that, you know, is embracing life or, you know, supporting life. So that's the literal definition. But I think more broadly, biophilic design has become known as something where you're really just connecting buildings and the built environment to nature. And you're looking for opportunities to to bring nature into buildings, to connect. I mean, it can range everything from having a you know great daylight so that people can track the time of day, the weather, um, you know, the seasons, having great ventilation and, and good ventilation so they're sort of healthier places from an air quality perspective. Much of this thinking began in the 1980s and 90s, when a number of studies were made looking at how indoor air quality, ventilation and natural light were good for people's health. It's one of those things that seem blindingly obvious to everyone, but which you sometimes don't see any action being taken around until scientists are able to establish it definitively. Exactly. But there were two researchers in particular, the environmental theorist Edward O. Wilson and Yale University's social ecologist Stephen Kellett, who first elucidated this concept of biophilic design. Oh, they're the authors of the biophilia hypothesis, right? Yeah, which was a really important book from 1993 that really launched this term. Their idea was that our relationship to the natural world is that we don't only need it for physical sustenance, but also for aesthetic, emotional, cognitive, even spiritual satisfaction, according to Kellett. So today, Amanda says, biophilic design really extends into a bunch of different and sometimes quite disparate areas. More broadly now, it's really I would divide biophilic design into three categories. Um, And the first would be it's about bringing direct nature into a space. So you might bring fresh air, daylight or water features, natural materials, fireplace, you know, those sorts of things. So you're sort of bringing nature in to the to the building. So that's pretty straightforward. And does that also include houseplants? Yeah, I think so. You know, they've been shown to boost your mood and all that sort of thing. However, on to the second category. The second is is really about connecting to the place. You know, a place has all kinds of components to it that make it uniquely that place, right? It has a specific microclimate, it has a geology, it has a cultural history, it has, you know, distinctive flora and fauna, for example. Um, And so buildings that, um, or built environment of any kind, that, that really get to know that place and respond to it uniquely in this sort of design solution or engineering solution also have, you know, this sort of biophilic connection. Okay, well, that immediately strikes me as significantly harder to achieve. I think we all felt on firmer ground with houseplants. Yes, because it's one thing to use local materials, but it's another thing altogether to connect to the culture and history of a place. 
you know, it's just so much more subjective and difficult. Anyway. The third is about really bringing sort of more abstract senses of nature into the building. So that could be in forms like arches and spirals and the sort of natural forms it can be in having, you know, leaf patterns and colors in the project. It could be green walls, those sorts of things where you're sort of bringing more abstract concepts of nature into the space and you're also looking at the aspects of nature that give us that sense of peace and tranquility. So this is more straightforwardly visual. Yeah, it's this idea that we intuitively respond well to representations of natural forms, whether it's a green wall or a floral wallpaper, which, well, we we can come back to that. I think one thing to take from this is that biophilia is something of an umbrella term for all sorts of questions that architects and designers have been talking about for a long time. To help illuminate this, later in the episode we're going to be looking at a project by Alex de Reich that incorporates a lot of the things Amanda was talking about. But there is a caveat to that. Oh? Alex prefers not to use the term biophilia about his work. Oh really? And why is that? I'll let him explain. I think, you know, biophilic is really um, one of those expressions that helps to distance people from discourse of architecture, I think. You know, it's, it's in a sense, like all jargon, it, it helps to alienate what should be everyday conversation. So I admire a lot of uh, so-called biophilic architecture, but I wouldn't describe it as such, you know, I just call it architecture. Right, so buildings with lots of natural light, connections to the outside, and a range of natural materials tend to be more pleasant to be in. Maybe we don't need a special word for it. Or at least not in everyday discussions around architecture, which is something that would be really useful for listeners to take away from this. While some architects and theories may use biophilic design as a useful label for discussion within their field, you don't have to. When people talk about biophilia, all they're really talking about is the need to incorporate nature into architecture, whether directly or indirectly. Right, and there are different degrees of this too, so maybe we should start with one really obvious, minimal and straightforward route. It's what we mentioned earlier, houseplants. It might be a small gesture, but it actually brings out some of the wider thematics of biophilic design. So, I spoke to the architect Asif Khan on this exact topic. Asif is based in East London and, in 2016, he created a series of pavilions called Forests for Mini Living at the London Design Festival. These were plant-filled spaces where people could meet and relax amongst the greenery. I actually remember going to those. One of them was like a lending library for houseplants, so you could... You could pick up a plant if you left another one behind. Yeah, exactly. A plant swap shop. So Asif was really passionate about bringing plants and natural elements into his buildings. And his interest in this actually started very young. I grew up in a household with parents who were really green-fingered. And there, I remember there was a point at which uh, my parents renovated the house. And the house transformed. It was, it was wonderful. But... A number of the plants that I grew up with in that house, they had become huge, they'd grown with me. They died in the process of renovation. And it's very strange, it had a, had a really powerful effect on me. I had, hadn't realised that the rooms that those plants were in were coloured by those plants. The atmosphere in those rooms was because of those plants. And, you know, and these are plants that were like 30, 35 years old, 40 years old. It's sort of that realisation that we were already living in a sort of symbiosis with those other beings. I hadn't, I hadn't realised the importance they had to the architecture, actually. 
they were they were occupants that were cohabiting with us. I love that cohabitants. I mean, some people name their house plants. I do actually. I have a cactus called Tiny Tim, who is in fact no longer tiny. <laughs> I'm not very green fingered. I recently reduced the flowering cactus to slime, but I do like the principle. Anyway, this experience really came to inform Asif's work. It's not exactly a quantifiable insight, but one that was felt deeply, uh, emotionally. And so I, I wanted to create a, a, an architecture which was a composite of the two in a more overt way. Rather than having a, a plant in the corner that's a bystander, it, it could become the main protagonist. And for Asif, this interest in plants can then feed into broader conversations around architecture. In what way? I'll let him explain, but it goes back to the lending library idea you mentioned earlier. In the case of forests, we thought of the, these elements, these structures, as libraries, but for plants. And the idea was that the public bring plants from home, and the, the horticulturalist who's there gives them advice and might take the plant into the library, might give them another plant back. So there was, a, there was an exchange, and that exchange changes the, the look and feel of the place, the different sizes of foliage, the colour, the, the, the scents of those plants, and so on. Now, here we're talking about plants. But the idea could then be extrapolated out to how we treat our built environment more widely, right? That's the plan. If you can exchange plants and encourage that form of interaction between people in public spaces, what other ways are there of encouraging participation? In Asif's words, it's... The idea that we make marks on our landscape, something that's very difficult to do today in the city. We feel so disengaged from the process of building cities, and we are disengaged from them. So, Asif's installation, which is ostensibly about plants, becomes a way of talking about people having more control over and a greater connection to their built environment. You might be involved in a planning consultation meeting, but really to affect change is is impossible or at least very challenging for, for an individual in this as a citizen. So through these projects and through this idea of interactivity, we I would like to offer the public a vehicle to participate and to engage and to have themselves seen and heard. It's about affording people a kind of right of citizenship and a role, a role in, the, in, in how the city is. This seems to be something that's present in what Alex was saying too. Although he works in a way that might be described as biophilic through his use of timber, he's not doing that in order to be a biophilic designer, as it were. He sees those materials as a way to address other questions within architecture. Absolutely, which is where his work on Maggie's Oldham comes in, the case study I mentioned earlier. For those who aren't familiar with it, Maggie's is a cancer care charity that, since 1996, has run a programme of commissioning architects and designers to create specialist centres for those receiving treatment for cancer and their friends and families. They're places which are close to the hospital, but also outside the main body of the facility, such that much greater consideration can be given to how those spaces make those within them feel. Right. And over the years, any number of architects have taken these projects on because they're an amazing chance to try and make an incredibly difficult situation more manageable for those in it. For an architect, it's a chance to think about how a space might make somebody feel and explore what architecture can do to make a person feel as calm, relaxed and cared for as possible. In a medical setting, a lot of those considerations around healthcare in biophilic design that Amanda mentioned obviously come to the fore. The Maggie Centres are projects which get a lot of attention, and rightly so. 
So I've actually seen the building that Alex and DRMM designed for the Royal Oldham Hospital in 2017, the case study we're going to talk about. It's raised up on stilts above a garden and flows around a central oasis. So there's this glazed void in the building which opens up onto the garden below and where a tree has been planted to actually grow up through the building. That's one form of biophilic design, but the whole building is infused with these ideas. So the entire structure was made from tulipwood CLT, giving it a wooden interior. That use of timber is typical of DRMM's work in general, but it had a particular resonance for the Maggie Centre. You know, a great deal of research had to be done in terms of you know, the construction and the detail and everything's important. You know, when you're, when you're feeling isolated and unable to uh, identify with others around you, you know, you're sitting on a bus thinking, I've got cancer and no one else has. But when you're in that position of isolation, you need a building which, um, it's not just, a, you know, the cliche of welcome. It's the idea that you can uh, find some kind of peace there and some sort of luxury that is an alternative to contemplating the plastic chairs and the you know the life sentence you've just been given in the hospital oncology suite I mean and how does an architecture how can architecture you know answer all those questions and there are things like the way the light works your relationship with nature things uh, the tactility of it the colors what the views are now As Alex said right back at the start of this episode, a large part of his answer to those questions was derived from trees, or rather, working with this timber architecture. So, as you can imagine, a wooden interior is a lot more welcoming and warmer than many alternatives. It's certainly very far removed from the cliché you imagine of these pristine white hospital corridors, which are rather chilly and impersonal spaces. Exactly. So the timber in Maggie's Oldham helps to create a different atmosphere and experience of that space, and hopefully one that its users find more humane. There are also some more functional reasons for its use too. So Alex decided that none of the door handles would be made in metal, for instance, but would instead all be produced from oak. And that detail is um, a good example of how Lucy Fassett, my friend with cancer, she pointed out that when you are... When you have chemotherapy, you have what's called peripheral neuropathy, where um, you're overly sensitised to anything anything cold, and you can't take things out of the fridge. Sometimes you can't even touch the fridge handle. That was a direct response to that problem, where you just thought, okay, we're not going to have any metal in this building that you touch. The small details like that do make a difference. I think it's also to do with, sometimes it's not even necessarily why that's detail is different. It's just enjoyable that somebody's cared about it. I think you appreciate that. That's a really lovely detail and something that seems so important on a project like this. Yeah, absolutely. And the building is full of things like that. So all of the insulation is wood fibre, for instance, because there's some evidence that this creates more breathable, healthier environments. And the wood also provides good acoustic properties. But alongside these specific health reasons for designing with natural materials, there's something more ineffable too, which Alex thinks comes to the fore if you compare wood to other construction materials. I mean, people automatically and instinctively know that it's psychologically satisfying to be in wood buildings, um, but perhaps they're not sure why, you know, beyond the fact that timber has warmth and uh, acoustic properties that are much better than, say, plasterboard. 
I guess what we keep returning to here is that being in spaces made from natural materials with views onto natural features just feels good, whether you want to call that biophilia or just good design. So how can some of these principles be promoted within the industry? I asked Amanda about this because it strikes me that for architects and designers to push anything through with a client, you need to have a more solid justification than just, you know, come on, we all know it's just nicer. (laughs) Within today's building industry, you kind of need a way of quantifying the effect that any material choice will have. For that first category of biophilic design, you know, fresh air and all that sort of thing, Amanda says that there actually is really good, solid research. You know, if you can't quantify it really easily, it does become really difficult to justify, right? So there's enough data out there on the benefits of fresh air, daylight, connection with having an outdoor space amongst the sort of commercial sector. So, you know, we've seen Google do biophilic design guidelines. We've seen Salesforce, the top of their big tower in San Francisco is called the biophilic floor. We've seen the big spheres that the the Amazon headquarters in um, Seattle that, you know, are essentially botanical garden spaces that people can retreat to over lunch or have meetings in there. We're seeing large corporates that whose biggest cost is their employees, you know, acknowledge that this connection with plants or ability to um, have some time in nature during the day is is got a connection to productivity. Right. But the imperative there is to boost productivity. Absolutely. There was a University of Michigan study that talked uh, that, you know, demonstrated one hour in nature gives 20 percent more productivity. So for companies that have large amounts of employees, having them be 20 percent more productive is probably a a huge cost impact um, on the positive for them. But what about those more ineffable qualities, that certain knowledge that many of us seem to have, that natural materials just feel good? And that they would be nice to have in all sorts of contexts where people spend a lot of time from homes and schools to hospitals and, yes, also offices. But what about all of those other spaces? On this, research is a bit less conclusive. You know, I think human scaled places and spaces that, um, you know, are more full of natural materials are places that people are intrinsically and intuitively drawn to. But yeah, do I have a science sort of study saying that's true? Not entirely. It's much less clear about how those sorts of like materials or if you like almost like color palettes or, you know, bringing leaf patterns into carpets or wall coverings. It's unclear to me what health benefit that would have. I, I haven't seen a lot of convincing studies that show that does have, you know, really good health outcomes. What would be great is to have more data on how natural materials, you know, such as, you know, would have better data. That answer suggests that the route forward is to generate more data. And with that, we could begin to try to quantify the feelings that people have. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, as I'm sure some interesting results would come out. But it also feels slightly unnecessary? There's surely something to be said for something feeling right and allowing that to inform how we build and design, even if there aren't yet the precise metrics there to measure it. Yeah, that's what the conversations that we've had for this episode left me thinking too. On the one hand, it'd be helpful with more studies. And we do live in a world in which that kind of cost analysis is necessary to get pretty much anything built. But on the other hand, maybe we rely over much on the constant quantification of everything. 
Maybe we should leave designers and architects to make aesthetic choices without having to justify every single decision with metrics. So, we're ending this episode with a call to developers then, perhaps more than one to designers and architects. Yeah, I think so. Because as we've seen throughout this season, timber and the environments that produce it, the forests, they're exceedingly difficult to reduce to simple metrics. That's true of their carbon uptake, how much carbon they then sequester, how they ought to be regulated and managed, and what impact they have as a material in our everyday lives. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It's important to continue to conduct the research, of course, and to pin down as much information as possible. But it's also important to have conversations about those findings and try to figure out what the grander overarching messages are. That's what this first season of Words on Wood has been about. And what have been our overarching take-home messages? I'd say build more with mass timber. We need more housing, the resources are there, and it's a great way of capturing carbon. But also make sure the timber is sourced from a responsible supplier. Certification is good, but not perfect. Good forest management involves all the stakeholders, big and small. And finally, trust that when a natural material, like wood, simply feels good, that's really worth something. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast made by Desenio in collaboration with and with support from AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council. We want to thank all our interviewees for this season. They were Galina Chukina, Sebastian Cox, former Phantasma, Jamie French, Asif Khan, Connie McDermott, Rupert Oliver, Alex DeRyke, Amanda Sturgeon, Sean Sutcliffe, and Andrew Waugh. We've been your hosts, Christina Rapatsky and Ollie Stratford, and the season has been produced and edited by Evie Hall.